Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Matteo Mediori, who is Professor of Finance at Stanford Graduate School of Business. His research focuses on international macroeconomics and finance. Welcome, Matteo. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your recent papers, which I found really interesting, Five Facts About Beliefs and Portfolios. Uh, you you say that we study a newly designed survey administered to a large panel of wealthy retail investors. The survey elicits beliefs that are important for macroeconomics and finance, and matches respondents with administrative data on their portfolio composition, their trading activity, and their login behavior. Yeah, I found this very interesting, Matteo. Um, I do some trading. I'm not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. uh but uh, the the recent count i think in the us is something like 20 million people uh trade uh, quite frequently uh so that's a very large proportion of the the population uh but this is wealthy retail investors so we can learn a lot from this data so so what do we find from this data fantastic so this is a paper um joint with my co-authors uh stefano giulio johannes strobel and Steve Utkus was uh, until recently was at Vanguard and in fact it's a collaboration that we have with Vanguard uh so what we've been doing is uh running and designing and running a survey asking essentially people like you and me a retail investor who might have an account at Vanguard uh what our views are about returns on the stock market but also the probability for example that a large crash a return in less than than 30% or negative 30% of the stock market would occur over the next year but also our expectations for example about the economy um how much growth are we going to see over the next 3 years what about the next 10 years and we originally designed this study back in 2016 and we've been running it every 2 months uh since february 2017 so we actually managed to also run it over the covid crash which was a particularly uh, interesting period and part of the unique setup here is 
uh, we've been able to uh, connect the answers that people give uh, to their portfolios at Vanguard. Of course, they're anonymized. I don't know who the, per who the person is that answered, uh, but I know their portfolio at Vanguard. And so I can observe uh, their trading. I can observe their overall investments. And so one of the questions we had is how do uh, the answers, what people uh, report they believe about the economy and the stock market uh, shape the way they invest? And you know, until very recently, these kind of studies would have been extremely difficult to execute. Uh, I think uh, technology has made it possible to design these relatively large-scale surveys uh, quite cheaply. It's also made people much more familiar with being able to answer these surveys. For example, you might get this email and you answer on your phone or on your iPad or on whatever medium you like. Uh, and so really it has opened up uh, an entire area of investigation. And at the same time, it was wonderful to be able to partner with Vanguard because as you can imagine, a very typical problem is uh, you and I might say things in surveys that not necessarily reflect what we truly believe when we think about this, or at least the way we would think once we go and make large investment decisions. So being able to see actually where you put your money, um, it's, it's a great advantage. And uh, from, you know, from a series of studies that have come out from this collaboration, one of the things that has amazed me is um, there is a strong relationship between the beliefs that people report and what they do. So for example, those people that report uh, being more optimistic about the stock market do own a bigger fraction of their wealth in equities. Um, those people that report uh, being afraid of or be thinking that it's more probable that we're going to see an extremely large drop in the stock market over the next year, uh, you know, sh shade down their investments in equity. On the other end, and you know, this I'm going to try to make it intuitive, if you actually ask quantitatively, how big is this relationship? So there's a difference between the relationship being statistically strong, we're quite certain that from a statistical perspective that there is a relationship, versus from an economic perspective, if I move my expected return, say, from you know, one, uh, 5% to 6% for the next year, how much of my portfolio do I shift farther into equity? Well, that one turned out to be uh, relatively small. In fact, compared to our typical benchmark models, it's about 10 times too small. Um, so people are, do believe, you know, trade or they act on their beliefs but um, their actions are much more mild uh, than our typical models would have predicted. And so that's an interesting observation because it pushes us to reevaluate a lot of the things that we think we might know about how trading happens and how prices move in general equilibrium. Yeah, it's really interesting, Matteo. So if I understand this correctly, um, there is a relationship between beliefs and portfolio allocation. So you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. But then when the delta in changes happen, it doesn't appear to really flow through the portfolio composition, right? So if, if your beliefs change, is it, is it related to the fact that there's a cost to portfolio reallocation? So that, that's perfect. So let me divide it in two things. First, uh, there's what economists call the extensive margin of trading, which is if your beliefs change, uh, is it predictable whether or not you're going to trade? And we found the answer to be largely no. Now, by introspection, that seems natural because my beliefs change all the time, but I'm busy. I have two kids, I have things in life. Uh, 
you know, generally when I get to trade is in particular dates where I can sit down and find the time, or if I have a liquidity shock, there's lots of other things that dictate when I trade that aren't just my, the dynamics of my beliefs. On the other hand, we found that on the intensive margin, so conditional on doing a trade, um, the, both the direction and the magnitude of the trade uh, reflect your beliefs. So conditional on trading, if I gotten more optimistic, I'm more likely to buy equity. I am more likely to buy more equities in proportion the more I've gotten optimistic. The part that, where I mentioned the sensitivity is low, is that the way to think about this is that our models generate a very strong correspondence between changes in beliefs and how much do you change your portfolio. Now, for many years, this was um, great news in some sense, because if we think that people change their mind a lot, uh, for example, they might behaviorally change their mind much more than the actual uh, economy is changing. And if demand of, for stocks is going up and down a lot, um, that might generate lots and lots and lots of price volatility. Um, and so it might explain why, for example, the stock market seems to be so volatile uh, compared to the actual state of the economy. Now, what we pointed out is that that intermediate step um, doesn't work so well. Uh, that doesn't mean that this is, you know, by any, any stretch of the imagination, the end of the conversation. Um, you, know, you then have to say, well, maybe even these small flows that we observe in practice could be enough to change prices a lot if there aren't that many other people on the other side of the market that are willing to take the other side. But let me give you an example. Think of like COVID 2019. Uh, in, in March 2021, no, it was 2020, um, blanking on the year, 2021, I guess. No, March 2020 was the stock market crash. Yeah, this is like too, too much time at home. <laughs> the, the years start blending into each other. Uh, so in, you know, in February, March, we realized that COVID was going to hit the economy badly. And what you see in our data is people become very pessimistic about the stock market. And they do get out of, of equity funds. But the amount of equity they sell, it's relatively small. So the flows aren't huge. Um, now, how can you rationalize that people trying to sell that much equity generates a 30% or 25% drop in the stock market? Well, it has to be that at the same time, there is nobody else in the economy who in the midst of COVID with those conditions, it's super willing to buy and say, well, if you want to sell, you can give it to me and prices don't have to move. So that's, that's when, you know, when economists talk about heterogeneous investors and their elasticities, uh, they have in mind this one. It's okay, if the retail sector wants to get out, uh, for any given amount they want to get out, we need to figure out who's, who's there to take the other side and how much prices have to drop or expect that returns have to increase for the other side to come in. And, you know, I think COVID was a very good uh, laboratory for this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting thing to think about. So prices uh, are the effect of demand and supply. And if there is there is uh, some supply, <laughs> no demand, uh, prices could crash. Uh, and 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 so, so it's not a, so in some sense, if I understand this correctly, Matteo, it's not a systematic effect in the sense that uh, the, the players, the traders of the economy is not systematically pessimistic. It's just that they're not necessarily optimistic about, about, about the economy. And so a small percentage of the participants selling and there is no you know, sort of 
floor to the price, there's no no buyers, then things could go really haywire. I think that's what we saw, right, in the COVID-19 shock. I think I, so. I think that that's right. Um, the way I would phrase it is: we see these retail um, traders becoming uh, very pessimistic. They're getting out, um, even if ultimately, you know, it's not like they're going from 90% equity in their portfolio to zero. They might only be moving to say 70% equity to 55 or 65% equity. But the flow that results from that might move prices a long way if there isn't another sector, say hedge funds who are just sitting there thinking, oh, we'll take the other side of that, no problem. Uh, prices only have to move 2 or 3% before I'll come in and buy. If that sector is very you know, um, reluctant to come in, then prices might come down a lot. So a lot of the recent research in finance, including our paper, has been pointing out that that's a, an interesting angle. So you know, we documented it using surveys and the Vanguard population um, a quarter of Mike Xavier backs with his quarters has a theory paper going into that dimension saying, look, maybe that's what we need to explain um, what we see in reality with prices. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I can see that there is sort of um, a number of papers that have been circulating in this area trying trying to say, well, is that plausible? Is that uh, is that what this is pushing towards? Um, and, you know, I don't think we know the answer fully yet, uh, but it has certainly um, open up an interesting conjecture. Yeah, so so would you say, Matteo, so in a, in a shock, whether it's a really severe shock or a moderate shock, um, the, the, the price reaction that we see in the market is going to be quite severe because, because of this demand supply um, issue. Um, that, that seems very plausible. I mean, that, that's how we, you know, we thought of interpreting our data. Of course, you know, in the context of our study, you know, the, the nice things of, of our study, one of the things I like is, that, you know, it's quite empirical, it's talking about what we observe in that population. Uh, and I, I think you document some facts that I find interesting. To aggregate to what, you know, what happens in the economy, uh, you need, you know, many more assumptions, including, for example, about populations that we don't observe uh, in our data, like how do hedge funds behave? Uh, implicitly, when I make that argument, I am in the background thinking that the hedge funds aren't so willing during that episode to immediately come in and swoop up whatever stocks the retail sector is, uh, is getting rid of. Uh, now, with that one, we don't, you know, I want to be clear, we don't document it in our papers. So you need to go through a progressive set of assumptions uh, to get the final outcomes. But that's, you know, very often what we do in economics. We see some pieces of the element and we ask, OK, what other pieces do I have to believe in uh, through the lenses of a model for this to all uh, generate the aggregate outcomes that we see in the world? Yeah, so if I understand this, the the conventional wisdom has been that stock markets underreact to information. If what you're saying is true, in some sense, prices overreact to information because it's of the supply-demand imbalance, right? So here, I guess I was I would phrase it slightly differently. The, you know, and I'm gonna somewhat mischaracterize 30 years of economic thought, but just to make it fast and intuitive. Um, you know, the, the first approach to behavioral economics uh, in, in the context of uh, the stock market was, look, the economy doesn't change that much. Ex-post GDP and dividends aren't that volatile. 
but it seems that people's beliefs about these objects are much more thought out. So Bob Schiller won the Nobel Prize in, um, for his contribution in finance and, and, and in rationality of markets, uh, very much had in mind, look, uh, the future dividends or the future GDP doesn't move that much. But if our perceptions of those uh, objects moves a lot, then prices will have to move because you know, when I get optimistic, I get really optimistic. And since supply of the stock doesn't change that much, uh, then prices have to go up. And um, I guess the more recent literature has said, look, that might, it's perfectly correct that the beliefs uh, oscillate quite a lot, but if people don't act on them that strongly, then that, that fact alone might be difficult to generate. And that's where the imbalances of various sectors and the sort of relative elasticities of these sectors in coming in and reacting to the shocks uh, matter. So you can still get these effects, you just need to work a little bit harder uh, in the models uh, to figure out how this all sits together. Yeah, I mean, we, are, we are clearly talking about uh, here with wealthy retail investors and the data, but with Robinhood and you know a lot of the fintech innovation around, um, do you think we are approaching sort of a regime change in the sense that uh, we're going to see this whiplash in the market, so to speak, more often? This is super interesting. So uh, first, in the context of my own research, you know, we're serving uh, the, the Vanger clients, and you know, that's both an important community. I mean, this is a company that manages $6 trillion worth of assets. Uh, the, the clients that we survey tend to be wealthy, tend to be market participants. So they're certainly interesting. Um, they're not the only market participants. I and mean, you, know, you, brought, you brought up like Robinhood or other platforms where people that might be day traders uh, tend to be more active. You could imagine that that's not the typical Vanger client. The typical Vanger client tends to be more of a long-term investor, doesn't trade nearly as much as a day trader. Now, they still trade a fair amount, but we're not talking about you know, day traders or uh, people that try to trade penny stocks or anything like that. And um, so one interesting effect is um, as um, scientists, uh, as we can analyze more and more of these populations, we're going to realize that their behavior isn't constant. I mean, even within our sample, uh, you know, wealthy people, people that pay a lot of attention, uh, people that tend to have non-taxable accounts, uh, tend to trade more and react more to their beliefs than others. So even within our sample, there's a fair amount of heterogeneity. That makes me suspect that as you go and look at day traders or professional traders, you should expect even more heterogeneity. And collectively, what we haven't um, sort of quite done yet is study all these different po populations and how that heterogeneity aggregates up to generate the outcomes that we see for the stock market. Um, so that, that I find super interesting. Uh, and so if anybody's listening who's interested in these issues and want to pursue them and, you know, on their own, you know, I certainly welcome more and more papers look doing this kind of study on different populations and figuring out um, how different are the results in which ways are different right now we don't know uh, you know i always say that vanguard was a wonderful partner it also had a great characteristic which is they were willing to do it and if anybody can do it in a different sample it'd be very interesting to see it but to the second part of your question um, you know overall what we're seeing is that more and more uh, some of the assets are i'm going to call them in the hands of households why because um, either they're participating directly through a brokerage account, or there's been a big rise of uh, passive uh, investment. 
So a lot of the assets, for example, are now in mutual funds, but these mutual funds tend to be um, relatively passive. So for example, there might be 100% equity or 100% bonds. Uh, if that's the case, it's really the household who's ultimately deciding how much to invest in equity, how much to invest in bonds. It's very different from an old world where I would park my money with the bank and then the bank will take the money and invest it in, in the assets. And I wouldn't have much of a relationship with what they're doing. Uh, and so that one, I think, makes these kind of ultimate decisions in the hands of the households um, an interesting problem. Yeah, so I was also wondering, Matthias, you know, if from a technical perspective, if markets are weak form efficient, it is still unclear why people trade. I mean, you know, it, it, is, a, it is a capital allocation problem uh, that you're ultimately dealing with. An academic prescription for 50 years has been just be on the efficient frontier and, you know, just go home. So, so why, why is this, um, why is this keep repeating? You know, is there alpha in trading? So I think there are some things that we sort of moved a little bit away from, at least in, in, in my view of the profession. And one of them is, look, we're very open to behavioral effects. There's all sorts of reasons why people make mistakes, that they, they trade when they shouldn't, there's liquidity shocks, there's lots of these things that, you know, ultimately it doesn't mean that markets are inefficient to the level that it, it would be super easy for me and you uh, to make a fortune because everything is very predictable in the markets. Uh, it isn't. Um, on the other end, it's also true that, uh, you know, you and I aren't the typical, we aren't a sophisticated financial institution that can intermediate these markets. So it's perfectly possible to see arbitrages in markets um, that aren't being exploited, even right now, for example, in the currency markets. Uh, and yet, um, so in that sense, the markets are quite inefficient. Um, but once you look closer, what you realize is that the institutions that would normally um, you know, make these things disappear in terms of arbitrages are actually capital constraint from uh, regulation, from uh, credit constraints problems. And we've sort of, particularly with the financial crisis, we've come to understand that these are very large um, phenomena, that even the banks can become very, very constrained. Uh, and, and we put a lot of regulation in, on them to uh, not use infinite amount of capital to squeeze the last two cents out of an arbitrage. Uh, we might think that that's not a robust. If anything goes wrong, that's extremely expensive. And we might be more willing uh, as a society to live with a few arbitrages left open, uh, but a lot less capital at risk should something that we haven't understood go wrong. Yeah, and the volatility around that. So, so I want to go into another completely different area uh, from your 2017 paper, a model of the international monetary system. You say we propose a simple model of the international monetary system. We study the world supply and demand for reserve assets denominated in different currencies under a variety of scenarios. The hegemon versus a, a multipolar world abundant versus scarce reserve assets, and a gold exchange standard versus a floating rate system. Um, so the, the dollar has held a very special status <laughs> um, for, for many decades now. And 
that that has a significant positive effect on the U.S. economy, I would think, right? So, 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 so when you say you have a simple model for the international monetary system, what do you mean? So, um, so this is joint work with um, my co-author Emmanuel Fari, who unfortunately uh, recently passed away. Um, so, you know, what we were thinking at the time is um, exactly what you have in mind: that the dollar had been central for a long time. There are potentially benefits from this. If you um, look back uh, to the 1920s and earlier, the pound had a similar role. Um, and there have been research on this, but what was still confusing to us is um, what's the right model? What's a simple model to describe uh, what these countries at the core do? And in particular, why every now and then these systems blow up? You know, when I look at the history of the monetary system, it seems that uh, every now and then we set these systems up and um, they work well for a while. And then they end up with um, a major crisis that um, generally the contemporary sorts um, tend to describe as, as if they were runs on a country, like a run on the dollar. And so what we wanted to understand is one, why is that? Uh, is that because whatever we do, uh, there could be shocks that are big enough to bring the system down? Or is the way we design the systems endogenously leading to their demise, that there are incentives for the for the company at the core of the system to take enough risk that it might eventually blow it up. Uh, and, you know, we ended up doing something very simple, which I'm happy to describe to you. Um, let me start in a world where there is only one such company. Then we can think about what happens when there are multiple of them, like, you know, the U.S. and China or maybe the U.S. and Europe. Uh, let's think of a world where the U.S. Um, does something very special. It gives you um, an asset uh, called a dollar short-term treasury or long-term treasury, something very safe that in almost all situations you can buy and there is no issues. And that's desirable from the rest of the world perspective because the world is full of risky assets, but there are very few things that are perfectly safe. Um, now, the word perfectly safe is really where the trick is. Uh, so what, what we, you know, everybody that buys an asset that is a liability of a government understands that perfectly safe means something about the future willingness of that government to repay you. For example, you know, not depreciating the dollar uh, a lot compared to other currencies when it comes to repaying. Um, and so the economics had um, well before us uh, created uh, very nice models to think of the following situation. Um, if I trust the country uh, as an investor, um, I will give it a low interest rate. And given a low interest rate, and if the country doesn't have too much debt, exposed, they will indeed behave well. It doesn't cost so much to repay. And so you can see this is an equilibrium. I thought they were going to repay me, and indeed exposed, they do. But there is another possibility, which I don't trust the country. I give them a very high interest rate. And if that is already sufficiently high, given a high interest rate and high debt, exposed indeed that will not want to repay me, that will try to lower their repayment by depreciating, inflating, or outright default. And therefore, it's rational for me, example, to give them a high interest rate, because indeed, not, I'm not going to get repaid, repaid in full in some states. And now, what we started thinking is a world like that, where the US is, has this unique property to supply these assets, and it wants to convince the world that they're very safe, example, because it gets low interest rates. But exposed, um, it might decide that uh, it's, too, it's fiscally too expensive. Now, I have to say, when we wrote this paper, people thought we were a bit crazy. 
because this was before the um, current discussions and the massive increase in debt of the US. Uh, and people forget that these things tend to happen. Now, there's actually, as you know, much more of a conversation about is the debt too high? Is it growing too fast? And that's exactly what people have, have in mind is a current interest rates, that's not a problem. But interest rates can change very quickly. And what if five years from now, we find ourselves with 120, 130% debt to GDP ratios and very high interest rates. By very high, I mean like 6%. Then the fiscal cost can be quite substantial. Uh, and that's what we're talking about. And uh, one of the nice things is, um, it is not true that faced with this problem, uh, the US will decide always to play it safe. In fact, um, think of the following. If there, if there is a lot of demand for my debt, that means that if I, give, if I convince you that I'm safe, uh, I, can, I can borrow a lot very cheaply. Now, I understand that there is a probability that you will turn on me and interest rates will be high and we collapse. But as long as that probability is relatively low compared to the benefits of very high demands or very low interest rates on the other side, I might decide to risk it. I might decide that I'm better off taking that chance. Um, and yeah, that's so, what we try to put forward. No, no, so, so, so it seems like greed has a downside. <laughs> Um, you know, if you keep pumping uh, based on um, ex-ante assumptions, so, so so what you're arguing here is that you, there is a break point. There is a sort of, you know, you're winding the spring up and as a mechanical device, at some point the spring breaks. Um, when the spring breaks, it is catastrophic uh, because a large part of the world's assets is uh, put into that sprint, so to speak, right? So, um, so, so how do you think about this now uh, post-COVID? Um, I don't know where, where the GDP to, uh, the, the debt to GDP for the US is today. I think it's exceeding 100% perhaps. Um, and and so you talked about I think uh, I just skimmed the paper, but you talked about you know reaching 150 uh, percent of the GDP. At that point, uh, a lot of things could <laughs> break loose. So so where are we and where are we heading? So that, that, that's an excellent question. So on 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 the spring analogy, you know what we try to formalize is an intuition. In fact, a famous conjecture from a Belgian economist that made it in the 60s. It's, today we call it the Triffin Dilemma, it's named after the, the economist being called Triffin. Uh, and it's the following idea. Essentially, as an, as an issuer like the US, I have two options. One option is I don't issue that much debt, I play it safe. Uh, well, that's good because it's safe, but we have the problem that there is very little debt. There's not these many of these assets that are being produced. Or I can choose to issue a lot more. Now, there is, if everything goes well, there's a benefit. I raise a ton of debt. Uh, that I might use uh, for useful things, for example, in fiscal policy or distributions and whatever you like those resources to be used for at very low interest rates. And I look like a genius. But I'm also implicitly taking the chances that I blow everything up. That if things don't turn out to be uh, an environment of low interest rates, uh, it'll be very expensive to shrink that debt. Uh, so that's exactly what, what we went after. And as I said, back in when we wrote the paper, uh, this wasn't perhaps as active as it is now as a debate. Uh, right now, it's very active because you see, for example, the U.S. Treasury 
uh, and a number of economists arguing that one of the reasons why we should expand the debt to GDP ratio a lot is interest rates are low, so it's inexpensive uh, to borrow. And it's a true statement. I mean, it is correct that um, the amount of uh, repayment is proportional to the interest rate, or the way to phrase it is, despite the fact that the debt to GDP ratio has gone up a lot, interest rates have fallen so far as to make it even cheaper to service the debt. Uh, but that isn't a permanent state. Uh, and in fact, interest rates, particularly this kind of once in 50 year changes, uh, tend to happen uh, very fast. Um, and economists tend to not be very good at predicting them. That's why we model them almost as a bank run. Like one day, it, it, people show up and say, we think the game is up. Um, we want our money back. Um, and so, you know, the, the problem with these kind of debates is that there's a way to trivialize this and say, are you saying that in the next three years, the US will have this problem? Well, no, that's clearly unreasonable. I guess the, the, the problem becomes once you start extrapolating that statement farther into the future, so that at some point it becomes an impossibility that this problem would happen. Uh, now, history doesn't support that. History says that this problem has happened to countries at the core of the monetary system, like England, who had stellar reputations for as uh, you know, safe places to invest. Um, and so I, I think for me, it's, it's difficult to subscribe to the notion that since this is impossible, uh, there is no fiscal cost from expanding the debt when interest rates are low uh, and everything is always good in all states. I think that is a nice um, sort of reasonable view that there are some benefits and there are these costs and that we're trading them off. And I'm very happy for reasonable people to think that they want to put more weight on one aspect or the other. Uh, but uh, it's so easy to lure ourselves into the idea of this is just impossible. We haven't seen it for 50 or 60 years. So the, it, it's an impossible event. That, that is, would be a catastrophic mistake in the long run. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very practical question, right? So it's a discontinuous change. Um, I go back to my spring analogy. When the spring breaks, all hell breaks loose. And at, some, and, and at that point, um, a lot of things have to change. You know, in some sense, you can think about a student going, to, going through education you know, took up some debt, 100,000, 150,000. The same interest rates that low, I'm going to go to graduate school, take up another two, you know, another 100,000. Then say I get a PhD, take up another 200,000. It's a bit like saying, oh, interest rates are low, let me just keep going. But I, at some point, you have to pay the piper. <laughs> you know, uh, it, is, it is going to come. Um, it, it is not a, a kind of infinitely extensible regime based on low interest rates. So, so do you think policymakers have a good understanding of what we're going through right now? Um, I, you know, I think policymakers are quite competent, uh, particularly the current uh, policymakers. Um, and still, I would say we all collectively, including me, have a relatively poor understanding of these big events, uh, particularly because they happen so infrequently. And you know, each time they're going to have some elements that are idiosyncratic to that historical period, that country. Uh, and so it's not so easy to, to, to sort of learn about this precisely because they're so rare. Uh, on the other hand, they're so catastrophic that it is imperative that we try to do our best uh, trying to think through them. 
But, you know, I, I think I want to stress um, the element of surprise in all this. Uh, so first, I mean, if we only had short term that, it'd be very clear this is like a bank run. One day it will happen and we're not going to see it coming. Now, some people, and rightly so, uh, point out that with longer term debt, um, if this problem was surfacing, we should be seeing it in the price of the debt. And that one, while it's correct, I think in practice is probably not um, a relevant element. The, the reason is a bit on the behavioral side. I suspect that what goes on in practice is uh, that a lot of the investors um, over a long period of time where nothing happens uh, tend to become too optimistic. Um, very much, like I said, they, tend to, they start thinking this event is impossible. And th that really is a, is a bit of a shallow uh, statement from a theoretical perspective, uh, because I'm just sort of describing as, by assumption that this is happening. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, nothing stops a shallow theoretical statement from being relevant in practice. Uh, I suspect that that's probably what happens. Um, and, and that's why we're not going to see it. Uh, until we're just right up against it. Uh, if I look at the collapse of England uh, in the late 20s, if I look at the collapse of Bretton Woods, uh, these weren't events that were widely anticipated before they happened. Uh, again, that's why we chose to model them crudely as, as almost runs on the country. Uh, and so I, I do think that uh, people that point out to uh, interest rates are low, uh, so we don't have to worry are very similar to those that were pointing out that the banks look healthy just before the global financial crisis and they could borrow cheap. So there was nothing to worry about. Well, there is the other element, which is maybe the price of credit risk has gone so astronomically out of touch with reality that even the most unhealthy institutions look healthy when you look at the data on, on their prices until they collapse. And so you have to really think of that story for. Uh, yeah. for why this is not going to be something we're going to have lots of forewarning about. Yeah, and the, the duration of debt is also quite interesting. So if you have a lot of long-term debt, the debt holders, there's some incentive. It, correct me if I'm wrong, Matteo. There's some incentive for the debt holder to not to kill the system, so to speak, because, uh, you know, they, they're sort of played into the story uh, of long-term growth. And it's more difficult for them to pull the rug um, from under your feet um, for the long-term debt holders as opposed to short-term debt holders. Does it follow? Um, so, I mean, I would say that long-term debt holders have less of a chance to kill the system because in some sense uh, they, they can sell the debt, but that it doesn't, technically speaking, it doesn't affect the issuer as much because, you know, they, they got the capital, they, have done, they don't have to repay it until the end. So it's certainly true, for example, that in the current environment of low interest rates, if one is worried about these issues, uh, lengthening the maturity of the debt can be helpful because it avoids this continuous rollover where the first time the other side changes their mind, the investor change their mind, the game is up. Uh, so that certainly does help. Uh, but again, you know, while that's perfectly true and it's advisable, that's I don't think that that will just get rid of the problem. Uh, why? Because there's still going to be the private sector, the banks, and they might be short term, the government. Uh, and so ultimately, I think uh, eliminating all of short term debt, uh, it's going to be very difficult because short term debt has lots of other uses and reasons why people want it. 
Uh, and so I think it's a statement on the margin that absolutely, you know, if anybody asks me for my advice on, you know, if you're worried about this, what would you do? Lengthening a little bit the maturity, it's a very good idea. Um, it decreases the probability of a rollover problem. Uh, but so I want to go to another area. Um, uh, you have a 2019 paper, International Currencies and Capital Allocation. You see, we established currency as an important factor shaping global portfolios. Using a new security level data set, you say we demonstrate that investor holdings are biased toward their own currencies to such an extent that countries typically hold most of their foreign debt uh, securities denominated in their currency. It, it's, uh, I don't know the, the data material, but it's, it feels very counterintuitive in a, in a globally networked um, system. Uh, but but this is happening, right? So uh, this is um, a paper with my co-authors Brent Neiman and Jesse Schrager. Uh, so you know, part of what we've been doing in the last few years uh, is uh, taking advantage of uh, more and more data that is becoming available on who owns which assets around the world, which is a first-order question in economics that feeds into many things. Um, but until very recently. Uh, it would have been just very difficult to get detailed data on this. Uh, and now, as a combination of what happened during the financial crisis and the European sovereign debt crisis, uh, policymakers and the private sector have a much bigger understanding of who owns which asset is something we need to keep track of. And so the data is being created more and more, and we've taken advantage of that. Now, in the confines of this particular paper, what we were surprised by is the extent to which the currency or denomination of assets dictates or it's related to uh, who owns the assets in equilibrium. And so I would I, I would mention two different things. One is uh, what happens to all developed countries, and then is the exceptional role of the dollars on the other side. The, the way to think about this is that uh, in most countries, uh, say the, the European Union, what they buy abroad tends to be bonds in their own currency, so in euros. Uh, that means that if you pick a random, a bond around the world that is denominated in euros, but not issued by a European company, chances are a big chunk of the, its holders are, are European investors. And uh, if they cannot find that, they tend to buy a dollar bond. And so the exceptional part of the dollar comes in two, two dimensions. The first is that uh, the dollar is used uh, for a lot of investments between third party countries, say European investors buying a Brazilian corporate a bond, very often that bond might be uh, in dollars. Uh, and the second thing that relates to the US, well, if everybody around the world in some sense is willing to buy dollars, uh, even when they're not dealing with a US borrower, uh, that's going to be even more true when they're dealing with US borrowers. And as a result, a lot of the, uh, corp you know, a medium-sized corporation of the US that only issues dollar bonds uh, still gets a lot of these bonds to be allocated to foreign investors. So right now, foreigners own about a quarter, like 25%. Uh, of all corporate bonds of the US. That's like a staggering amount. And they, they tend to all be dollars. That's not true for any other country. It's not true for England, Europe, like very high. We're not talking a difference between the US and an emerging market, but the US and the other you know, most financial developed countries in the world. Uh, and it's really the exceptional role. It's one dimension of the exceptional role of the dollar. So if there's a systematic bias like that, Matteo, um... Isn't that an arbitrage for hedge funds? 
Ah, interesting question. So um, for, let me do two things. Let me first describe the bias a little bit better and then get into the second part of the question of, is it an arbitrage, is it optimal, what's going on? Um, so one of the most uh, surprising results to me is that um, before this paper, there was a very, very long literature on what is called um, home bias. Now in the confines of bond, it's a very simple idea, is the notion that in each country, investors tend to disproportionately invest in the securities issued by domestic firms. So, you know, Americans tend to disproportionately issue uh, old bonds issued by American firms compared to the weight of those bonds in the world market portfolio. So a very simple idea of finance is everybody should be buying the world market portfolio. So you own an assets in, per in percentage of its weight in the overall world portfolio. And home bias is a deviation from that. And it's a particular deviation towards those assets that are domestic. Now, what we found is that at least for bonds, and particularly for corporate bonds, um, there is a, uh, this is sort of like an artifact of an omitted variable problem. And so let me explain this. Suppose that you were to, um, you're, you take the perspective of a US investor for a second, and you look at the world markets of bonds and you divide them into two categories, dollar bonds and non-dollar bonds. Now, there will be a huge level difference in the participation of US investors. US investors will be much more um, prone to hold the dollar bonds and non-dollar bonds. At the same time, within each of these two groups, uh, there will be almost no bias towards domestic issuers. So among all the dollar issuers, the bias towards US issuers is pretty small. And similarly, among all the non-dollar issuers, that might be very small. However, it's still true that most dollar issuers are gonna be in dollars. Sorry, most US issues are going to be in dollars. So what does this mean? It means that if you don't control for the currency and you only control for the country of the issuer, you would think that there is a big bias based on country. But once you additionally control for the currency, now the bias for country will go down a lot. So this for me changed um, you know, a long established view that I held uh, since I was a PhD student uh, that focused on just country. This tells me currency, at least in equilibrium, it's another variable that we should pay close attention to. Now that's a, just a simple regression. To go to your deeper question, which is, okay, why does this happen? And is this optimal or, or not optimal? That requires a lot more than just our descriptive analysis. In particular, you have to start thinking about, is there anything inefficient about this? And you could take two views. One view is, now that there is some optimal reason why owning your own currency is the best investment for you. And there's another reason that says, no, you're inefficiently not investing enough on, um, in other currencies. And in the paper, we came down on, on the second option. And it, it gets a little bit more intense on, on, on why we did that. Uh, but in, in, in principle, let me give you my most intuitive way to think through this. Um, it seems that um, as an investor, I am unwilling to buy the bonds of a particular issuer if they're not in the currency I want. Yet, I'm perfectly happy to buy their equity. Equities are sort of real assets. They're not associated with a currency so much. Mm -hmm. Now, that's very hard to generate if there isn't a bias. You know, anything that has to do with, I don't like the company, I'm not familiar with the company, any, anything of that kind should affect the bonds um, almost as much as it affects the equity. 
uh, but the currency is something that really separates the bonds away from the, uh, the equity. Um, bonds are very nominal assets. And we found extremely large discrepancies, um, so large that we thought it was implausible that they might be generated from an optimal behavior without frictions. But you know, that's where I'm going to stop because to go any deeper than that, you need to start talking no. about many more assumptions and go into the statements. No, no, it's, it's really interesting, Matteo. So there, there's so many things there. So, so when Nokia and Ericsson, so that there are multiple things. So let me let me see if I understand this. Um, when you issue debt, you could issue it on your own home currency, or you could issue it on US dollars, EU, um, um, or wherever, right? So you can issue it in different currencies. And so the home buyers that have been studied so far, if I understand this correctly, just looks at one aspect of this problem. The fact that uh, companies have flexibility to issue bonds in different currencies sort of mitigate the home bias issue. It makes it more democratic, so to speak. So that's that's one issue. The other issue is sort of the equity and bond question. So, so I'm thinking, you know, Nokia, for example. <laughs> uh, so, so Nokia issues bonds. U.S. dollar bonds, at that point, it's sort of democratized bonds. Anybody can buy it. Um, and people from Norway, is Nokia based in Norway? Uh, Finland. Finland, sorry. I believe. Uh, I'm thinking, but I believe that that's correct. <laughs> the Finns can buy it, you know, the Chinese can buy it, or whatever the case may be. But, but, but when the Finns go to buy equity, they would prefer... Nokia equity as opposed to Ericsson equity for whatever reasons, right? So, so, so th those are the two sort of axes that we need to think about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, to, to this day, there isn't a model that gen that sort of generates all this. I I'll add one other element, since you use the word democratize, which I think is interesting. When you look at the firm size distribution, what becomes very obvious is that it's only the largest firms that get to issue bonds in multiple currencies. You can imagine like if I'm a tiny firm, uh, it's very difficult to go and deal with three different currencies and all of that. Uh, it, so there is a big size effect. So what does this mean? It also means that if I look at, for example, US investors buying uh, European bonds, European corporate bonds, because they have this preference for the dollar, they tend to skew their portfolio towards the largest firms in Europe they will likely have issued dollar bonds. And there's, you know, there's a lot of firms in the middle and the lower part of the, uh, of the distribution that don't get any. The same is not true for the US because the rest of the world is perfectly happy to hold dollar bonds and all firms in the US issues dollar bonds. You find this, this cutoff uh, to not be present in the US. Even a firm that you know, is quite small, doesn't issue in any other currency but the dollar, gets about the same amount of participation from the foreigners as the largest firms uh, because the foreigners are willing to buy dollars anyway. Uh, so there, there is this allocation of capital across firms that seems to be driven by a size effect of issuing in foreign currency and an investor preference for particular currencies that we found extremely surprising given that we were not looking at emerging markets, we were looking at some of the largest bond markets in the world. Um, 
and it, it's interesting. Now, it, you know, to understand what the costs and benefits are, you need to take a stance on something that we haven't um, sort of estimated, which is you could think of two worlds. You could think of a world where the fixed cost of issuing in foreign currency is quite large, and the benefits are also large. And so that's why we see these big quantities moving. Or you could think of a world where the benefits, the variable benefits are also pretty small. The fixed cost is also very small, but quantities move a lot. And so in economics, a lot of things like you know, opening up to trade tend to have this debate. Uh, is it a big cost, big benefit world or a small cost, small benefit? Um, that we don't know yet. Uh, there's a very good paper by an economist at the, New York, uh, the Washington uh, Board Fed, uh, the, uh, the board, um, Gordon Liao, who's looked at, a little bit into this, sort of showing how the large firms tap these values bond markets in different currencies to shrink their overall cost of debt. And the way to think about this is if you're running a large multinationals that issues bonds in all sorts of currencies, the bankers will approach you and will say, look, we think that right now, if you borrow in European uh, um, in euros and then you hedge it into dollars, uh, you might get a 30 basis point or a 40 basis point better interest rate than if you issue directly in dollars or in, in yen and then hedge. And so he points out that that's what they do, that they try to squeeze all of these margins. Uh, what's very difficult to estimate is the total benefit. Like how much do they get away with uh, by doing this? Or, or the flip side is a firm that is not able to do that how much does it suffer because of that? Yeah, so there's a size effect. There is also a reserve currency issue, right? So if dollar were to lose its reserve currency status, a um, lot of things could change very dramatically, very quickly, right? Yeah, so you know, we, we've discussed two together. One is you know, the, the level of the risk-free rate, so the level of government um, rate. Uh, but then, in, this, in the confines of the, more, uh, the paper that we were discussing now on international capital allocations, one thing that it might do is that it might prevent a lot of your firms that actually get access to the global pool of savings by simply borrowing in, the, in their own domestic currency, which turns out to be the international currency, will not have that effect anymore. Essentially, you might end up looking like another developed country where it's only the large firms that get to do this and they have to borrow in foreign currency and then perhaps hedge it. Um, you know, th there's an active debate in economics about how big these benefits are. For example, you know, how, low are in how much lower are interest rates in the US given the level of debt because it is a reserve currency? And, you know, it's very hard to estimate. So it's anybody's guess, uh, but you know you you find estimates that range from ten basis points to two hundred basis points, uh, and so that you know it's a very wide range. Um, you know, personally, like I, I don't have an empirical estimate, so uh, listeners should, should really think of this as my personal opinion for whatever little it is worth. Uh, but I suspect that these benefits are quite large. Um, but you know. It'd be nice to have a more concrete scientific answer rather than my personal opinion, which I don't find to be worth very much. Yeah, so I want to touch uh, touch on a couple of more, couple of uh, other interesting things. So uh, you have a 2021 paper redrawing the map of global capital flows, the role of cross-border financing and tax havens. So you say glo global firms finance themselves through foreign subsidiaries, often shell companies and tax havens which obscures their true economic location in official statistics. 
We associate the universe of traded securities issued by firms and tax havens with the issuer's ultimate parent and uh, restate bilateral investment positions to better reflect the financial linkages connecting countries around the world. So, so briefly, so if you take into account all this <laughs> obscure tax havens and capital flows, what does what what does the true picture look like um, for for capital flows? So, you know, that's a paper that pointed out, I guess, two things. One is that the scale of these issues has grown enormously and what to do with them. But uh, that directly to, to answer what you've asked, you know, one thing that emerges is that uh, developed countries, in particular large countries like the US or Europe, holdings of uh, Chinese securities and more generally uh, securities issued by large emerging markets like the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, tend to be much higher than the official statistics would have led us to believe. So China, you know, Chinese equities is probably um, the most striking example, although it's, it's not the only one. Uh, the way to think about this is if you look at the European official statistics or the US statistics, uh, you will conclude that China is about a 2% a destination of all foreign portfolio equity investment. So for the US, that's about 150 billion. Uh, it's pretty small compared to say the UK that is over a trillion or Japan that is around 900 billion. And that turns out to be quite wrong in a meaningful way. Wrong, not in the sense that there is a mistake, but that the way these statistics are built obfuscates some interesting economics. Uh, what is the interesting economics is that most of the Chinese companies that, that you and I might have heard of, like Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, uh, tend to be um, listed on uh, either the New York Stock Exchange or in Hong Kong. But the company that is listed tends to be uh, registered in the Cayman Islands. And so in the official statistics, when you, know, you and I buy Alibaba on the New York Stock Exchange, what gets registered is an investment made by two U.S. residents in the Cayman Islands. Now, this turns out to be a staggering amount. So we estimate that the total investment of the US into China, it's higher by an order of 600 billion. So it makes China not 2% of US foreign portfolio equity investment, but 10%. That's a pretty large destination. And you can see that these changes are a picture, for example, of our exposure to China, our exposure to these particular companies. Should these companies collapse in value because uh, I don't know, Jack Ma gets into trouble with uh, the Chinese government and they crack down on Alibaba. What is the wealth effect? What is the exposure of U.S. consumers, U.S. households that have invested in this? Well, it's much bigger than we, we believe it is. Um, on top of that, I think uh, I will conclude here. Um, the other side is that China, we show, hasn't um, fully accounted for the market value of these companies that have been sold offshore. And so we conclude the paper by saying that China, that is reputed to be one of the largest creditors to the rest of the world, so about a $2 trillion creditor, so the third largest after Germany and Japan, uh, it's only actually um, a $1 trillion creditor. So 50% of that is an overestimate, about a mm -hmm. trillion dollar. And why is that? The way to think about this is imagine that what has happened is they sold Alibaba and Tencent, a uh, big, big part of those shares are sold to the foreigners but that the official statistics of China haven't kept track of the increasing market value of these companies over time. They're still keeping them at the original value. 
And that would generate a, a gigantic discrepancy because the market, these companies over the last 10 years have grown in value enormously. And so, you know, even a very tightly watched global imbalance that has attracted a lot of attention in policy, in politics, in academia, uh, you know, 50% of that is going to weigh below our eyes. And we haven't noticed because of these very complex structures in tax havens, which I found to be mind-boggling. I mean, I had paid close attention to that in the past in my research, and I, I, I was not aware of this. Yeah, I mean, so many policy implications there too. So if you're keeping Alibaba at book value, I think that it's going to create some complications uh, in many ways. So, so I want to conclude with um, uh, another paper that you have. Uh, so very long-run discount rates uh, you say we estimate how households trade off immediate costs and uncertain future benefits that occur in very long run, say 100 or more years away. We exploit a unique feature of housing markets in the United Kingdom and Singapore, where residential property ownership takes the form of either leaseholds or freeholds. Um, so, so what do you find here? So leaseholds are sort of long uh, leases. Freeholds are sort of perpetual ownership, right? So that, that's, that's a, you know, it's a paper that I, I found fascinating. Um, it came um, out in part of my personal experience. So I used to live in London with my wife uh, well, you know, before my PhD, and we own a house there, um, and the house was on a lease. And if you haven't, you know, if you've never lived in the UK, this context might be unfamiliar to you. But a lot of the housing stock uh, of the UK trades on what are called leases. What are, what are they? They're essentially, you pay an amount up front and it's your right to live in the house for a certain number of years, like two, 300 years. Um, sometimes you can buy what is called a freehold, which is what, you know, more conventionally in other countries is a property right, is the right to the house forever and ever. Um, what we could do, and this was a paper again with my co-authors, Stefano Giglio and Johannes Strobel. In fact, it's the first paper that we wrote together uh, many years ago. Um, we, uh, we got hold of the universe of all transactions of housing in the UK. And in particular, we, we compared houses that have uh, properties that have different um, lease lengths. And you can imagine that essentially it's like asking you, how much would you be willing to pay this house if you could live in it for 100 years? Uh, how much would you be willing to pay for 120, for 150? And tracing out that schedule. Uh, now, of course, that doesn't mean that you have to live there. What you do if you buy a 100-year contract and after 10 years you want to move out, you sell the remaining 90 years to somebody else. So these are very, very liquid. This is the, a very normal housing contract in the UK. And so what we managed to do was estimate this, this curve. And then we asked, okay, what does it look like? Well, first, there's good news that there is discounting. So indeed, the, the farther out you go, the less valuable it is for you to add additional years. Um, so you clearly pay a lot for the next 10 years, but you pay a little bit, you pay a lot less to go from 200 to 210. Um, and that, that's good news. Uh, but then it's also the level and the shape. And we ended up saying that a 2% interest rate uh, or rate of return is, um, does a pretty good job at explaining it. Uh, now that one turned out to be quite low. So what was surprising, this was, you know, uh, this was written well before we all crashed to zero rates, uh, but, uh, and it's on historical data. And it, so, you know, there's a lot of value that arises from uh, getting years on these contracts very far into the future. 
And you know, this led um, to a discussion or to an input into the more general debate on say, for example, climate change and things that have to do with the far future or what we need to make investments today. You know, one might be tempted to take the naive view of let's not worry, it's so far into the future that um, it has no, no present value to do anything. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be true in this market. Now, of course, to go beyond that statement, you need to start making much more serious assumptions about how much is housing exposed to climate change, what, what is the shape of its premium, and all of that, which we do in the paper. But sort of, you know, th that was, it was an economist that had been interested for a long time in sort of first order evidence that things that happen very far into the future uh, get priced today when people make decisions. And this was like a very clean setup uh, to do that and start thinking about these questions. Yes, really fascinating. I saw some data, Matteo. 50% of the world population today expects humanity to expire in uh, less than 100 years. Completely go away. I mean, we are going to be extinct in, in less than 100 years. So this, uh, you said this housing term structure is downward sloping, reaching 2.6%. At horizons beyond 100 years, it's very intuitive to me. Um, it <laughs> well, I, I, I do hope that, that I do hope that they're too pessimistic. <laughs> no, but but it uh, the data shows that right. The data shows that it's downward sloping beyond certain horizons, which means that I mean, which which could mean two different things to me. One is people are not willing to think that long horizons, and it, they are sort of uh, agnostic as to what could happen or what you know uh, what do happen. The other conclusion might be that people are really thinking that we may not be here hundred years from now. Um, so <laughs> it's an it, it, it's an interesting uh, sort of question of how to interpret this. Um, so you know this could be behavioral, it could be rational, have to do with what might happen to uh, to the economy. Uh, the way we ended up. Um, sort of modeling it is the following way. Suppose that um, you know disasters might strike at any time, but when they do, you know, they're not permanent disaster. They're not quite what you have in mind of you get wiped out. Uh, you know, what happens is they're very bad for a while, and then the economy is able to reabsorb part of that. Like not all of it, but there is some mean reversion. You know, we get like a big hurricane, the, the economy grows fast for a little bit, and then it goes back. Okay. Um, if that's the world you live in, then a downward slope arises. Um, why? Because essentially a short-term asset really loads very heavily on the entire thing. If it hits you, you're gonna get the full burn. A long-term asset loads less on that risk. Why? Because, well, even if it hits you, part of that was gonna go away uh, from some adaptation and some growth after that. Uh, and so that, that's how we ended up modeling for particularly for climate disasters. Uh, that doesn't make climate disasters uh, good. They're still a very bad event. Uh, but if you can smooth them out, if you all the assets that carry over these events, uh, they're a little bit less bad for you than if you get the full immediate um, realization. Uh, that's how we ended up uh, thinking about them. Uh, it's, an, it's an open question whether that's the right way to do it. Yeah, in a, in a regime of um, disasters, um... Do you think of freeholds? So I'm just thinking if you have a leasehold that has a specific duration, 
the the discontinuity, the occurrence, the timing of the discontinuity has a huge effect on you. Whereas a freehold will be more continuous in in its value. Roughly right? speaking, that's the intuition. If I you know if I only hold the asset, if I have it for the next five years, whatever happens in those five years, I'm fully exposed to it. If I own it for the next 50, even if the disaster were to happen on the next five, as long as it's not permanent, part of that will be reabsorbed through time. And so I'm a little bit less exposed in any given year to that. Uh, in some sense, you know, there's a resale value that comes from the fact that um, some of these will go away. There's a bit of mean reversion after that. Um, and so that, that's how we, you know, which seemed intuitive to us. Uh, if you look at, for example, economies when, you know, some of this disaster hits, uh, well, part of that gets reabsorbed, not all of it, but there's a bit of a, a mean reversion after the fact. Uh, and that's how we ended up thinking about it, which I think, you know, you're, you're exposing the intuitive way to think about this and how you, you might have thought about it in setting up what contract would you be willing to buy at which price. Uh, that's why we found it intuitive. Yeah, yeah. This is fascinating research, my dear. So I want to ask you one sort of final question to conclude. Um, we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about monetary policy. We talked about trading. We talked about discount rates. Um, we are just coming out of this COVID-19 shock, uh, hopefully, <laughs> who knows. Um, where do you think we are, sort of the international economic perspective? Um, you know, a lot of countries, a lot of developing countries have taken big hits in their economic growth. Um, U.S. and EU less so, it, it seems to me. So, so where, do you, where do you think we will be, say, three, four years into the future? Right. Um, one hope is um, COVID-free. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, more seriously, I, I, I think I'm particularly worried about um, emerging economies and the poorer countries where the vaccination rates are lower, um, the ability of the health system uh, to deal with this long term um, is also lower, uh, and where the government finances are much more constrained. Uh, you know, you and I talked about the risk of expanding debt uh, in the developed countries too much. That should not be taken as a statement that I, I wouldn't have viewed favorably expanding the debt during COVID. Not, not doing it gets you a disaster today. So even if that might be problematic in the future, clearly the value from avoiding the immediate disaster is pretty high. Uh, nonetheless, we are going to emerge into a world where uh, the developed countries have a lot of debt. Uh, the emerging economies that have been a, a growth engine for a while are going to deal with perhaps a longer-term issue, uh, and so I, I do think that you know not everything is rosy. I think we're certainly now in the um, in the boom phase. Part of that is just catch up uh, from having spent two years in isolation. Um, but it, you know, I, I do suspect that this isn't the end of trouble. Uh, we're going to face some ups and downs going forward in the next two or three years. Um, I, I, I do think that the debt issue long-term. Uh, it's going to come to bite, uh, and that the best way to avoid it in some sense is to tackle it uh, bit by bit uh, as we emerge from this. Make sure that the next, you know, inevitably we're going to have another disaster at some point, unfortunately, and we want to enter that state with lots of fiscal capacity to spare, precisely so that we can spend 
uh, without worrying about that uh, when that comes. I think it'll be a mistake to run out of dry powder uh, once we are in a, in a boom phase uh, with the notion that we can always double down. That, that doesn't, it's not true. Uh, and so I, I do hope that um, there is a plan for um, making sure that the next time around we can do much of what we did now, which is ex expanded that without being too fearful about it. Yeah, let's hope that we are in a better shape when COVID-24 happens. Um, exactly. Uh, I, I hate to be too pessimistic about this, but I think this is sort of the first iteration of many, uh, it seems to me. So. Yeah, I mean, look, the way I think about this is uh, we were very lucky that the policymakers in the U.S. in years past didn't borrow like crazy when they didn't have to. And during the global financial crisis, during COVID, we've been able to borrow and spend uh, and, and maintain the economy. That is a luxury that was afforded to us because we didn't enter these periods with catastrophically high debt. And that's a luxury that we should leave to the future generations uh, and have that space to maneuver. Excellent, yeah. This has been great, Matteo. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Thank you. Enjoy your Friday afternoon. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.